The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Confusion abounds in our culture on the topic of manhood and womanhood. In fact, in recent news, you see both of these headlines. Uh, there's a, there are 58 different gender options for Facebook users now. And then a year later, that came out uh, in 2015 and 2016, the Telegraph is a London newspaper. Now there are 71 gender options for UK users. So we live in a culture, we live in a culture that abounds in confusion, specifically, that didn't come out too well, specifically about gender, specifically about manhood and womanhood. When I looked at those 58 options, those 71 options, a number of those began to, they were on the page. And to be honest with you, I had to pull out a dictionary and begin to look up what a lot of these words mean. These are the different options that were listed for Facebook users. 58, two years ago, 71 last year. Mount Holyoke is a university up in the Northeast. The Ivy League schools were founded for the education of men. There were seven sister colleges founded for the education of women. They're called the Seven Sisters. Mount Holyoke recently, in their application two years ago actually, had over 30 different gender options for females desiring to enter their college. One of those was transgender male. Think about that for a second. So a male identifying as a woman could be admitted to Mount Holyoke College. The problem happened two years later when one of the transgender males decided he wanted to be a male and was already in the university for two years, and they had to make a decision what to do about that. That's confusing, and it's confusing for me just to try and keep it straight and to get it out. That's our society. That's our culture. That's where we live. That's where we play. That's where we work. As we begin to unpack this series over the next 10 weeks, I want to establish a couple of ground rules. First of all, the church needs to be a safe place. It needs to be a a haven of grace for those wrestling with these issues. And so, you know, I like to use humor a lot when I preach, and so I'm going to have to be careful about the, the words that I use, the jokes I tell, offhand comments, because I know there are many in our body that are struggling with this issue. There are many in our body who have sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, very close friends, and some of the folks in our body personally are wrestling with issues of manhood, womanhood, sexuality, and all these things. So we'll be careful about that, the things we giggle at and snicker at, especially when we look at the extremes. For the next 10 weeks, this is what we're going to do. Next week, I'll be preaching on manhood destroyed. The following week, I'll preach on manhood restored. Then we'll talk about womanhood destroyed, womanhood restored. Then we'll talk about the mission of marriage, the mission of singleness, sexuality, and conclude by looking at the family destroyed and the family restored. So for the next 10 weeks, this is where we're headed. This is what we're going to be doing. It's a great opportunity for us to invite folks that we work with, perhaps, or folks in our neighborhood or friends or family members wrestling with these issues who want to be informed about what the scriptures say. But for the next 10 weeks, this is where we're headed. This is where we're going to look like. In a culture that struggles, God's word speaks clearly. Let's pray. So, Father, where your word speaks clearly over the next weeks, would you help us to see it, understand it, and then to be doers of the word, not merely hearers? So we pray that you'll guide us. Father, as I preach, as different men on our staff preach, God, would you guide our thoughts, our understanding of the scriptures, And then, Father, as we preach, would you guard our tongues? And then, Father, as we as a body wrestle with these issues in the world around us, would you give us grace upon grace to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. In Christ's name, amen. 
Genesis chapter 1. If you open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1 is on page 1, so pretty easy to find. You go to the cover of your Bible, take a hard right, and it's the first page of Scriptures. Genesis 1, we're going to spend the whole morning right there. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1, reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've all got that memorized. You can memorize God's Word. It's pretty easy, isn't it? Genesis 1.1. In the creation story, the creation account, the crowning achievement of God's creation is the Imago Dei. Man created in God's image. The words Imago Dei, those two words are Latin words meaning Imago, image, Dei, God, man created in the image of God. That's our topic this morning. What's it mean and what are the implications of it? What does it mean? You've heard since you were a little kid that we are creating the image of God, but what does that mean? If I were to pass out cards right now, or I would say, hey, pull out your phones, type in what you think it means and text to me. What would I read that you wrote? What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? And then once we understand what that means, what are the implications of that? What are the implications of the fact that we, the crowning achievement of God's creation, are made in the image of God? That's where I'd like to head this morning. So what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 1-1 is the focus is upon the creator. God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. This is what it looks like in the Hebrew text and the English text as well. In English, we read left to right. In Hebrew, we read right to left. And so what that says is barashith bara Elohim at, and then it goes on, the heavens and the earth. And so when we see this, we have to seek to understand exactly what it means. In the beginning, the very first word up there, what you see are a bunch of funny looking letters, but what that means, Baharashit, or uh, uh, yeah, Rashit means this. Baharashit means this. In the beginning, it means the beginning of time. You see, God is eternal, God is infinite, God has always existed, God always has been, God is, God always will be. And so Genesis 1 1 starts with a chronological indicator in the beginning. God already existed, and so we're now talking about when time came into being, when his creation came into being. The infinite one already existed, and so he says, in the beginning. This is, by the way, a summary verse looking back on God's creation. Barashith, when time began, when our universe was brought into existence, God, the timeless one, created. In the beginning, God. The word for God is Elohim. The I-M on the end of any Hebrew word, E-L-O-H-I-M, is plural. I-M indicates plurality. We put an S on the end of anything. We say dogs, cats, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the I-M at the end of a Hebrew word refers to that which is plural. I think it's a reference to the plurality of the Godhead, the Father, Son, the Spirit. Because if you look at Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God, referring to the Father, created the heavens and earth. If you look in your Bibles or your apps at Genesis 1-2, it says the Spirit of God was moving about. And then if you look at Colossians 1, 14 and 15, it says Jesus is the one who holds it all together. And so when we see the word Elohim, I think it's a, a reference to the Trinity, and we're seeing that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were actively involved in the act of creation. In the beginning, Elohim. The word Elohim occurs 35 times in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim. 35 times in Genesis chapter 1. What that tells us is that the focus of Genesis 1, the focus of the scriptures, the focus of life is God. 
I mean, when we look at the creation story, and we're going to talk about the crowning achievement of creation, that is mankind, but the word that occurs 35 times is not man. The word that occurs 35 times is Elohim. And so this is a chapter about God, the creator. It talks about all that he's created in the days listed before us. In the beginning, Elohim, God. To the Hebrew mind, man can build, man can make, man can produce, but only God can create. This is a chapter about God. The whole of Genesis 1, the whole of the scriptures, the whole of life is a focus upon Elohim, the creator, not his creation. How many of you read the book Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren? You at least bought it anyway. Maybe you didn't read it. Let me see your hand. Raise them high. Keep them high. Take a look around this room. The best-selling Christian book ever written other than the Bible. It's amazing. Why? I mean, last time I looked, over 40 million copies. It made Rick Warren a very wealthy man, by the way, and I admire Warren because one of the things he did with his wealth, he returned every penny he took in salary from Saddleback Church after he made however much money he made. I admire that in him. I haven't written a bestseller, so I'm not returning. (laughs) But, But I do admire that about him. If I were to write a bestseller or inherit several million dollars from one of you, then I'll return what I received over the years to TBC. But here's the reality. you You know what the subtitle of this book is? Your life is not about you, it's about him. See, that's the story of the spiritual life. That's the story of life, period. And so we come to Genesis, and we're going to look at the crowning achievement of creation that's mankind. I want to remind you that Genesis 1 is all about Elohim. 35 times in one chapter, it's about him. It's about the creator, not his creation. Our life must focus upon him, not ourselves. Now, here's the problem. The problem is we live life focused on whom? Let me talk about Gary DeSalvo, upon myself. I like my comfort. I I like my being. I like what I do. I want it to be focused. What I've got to recognize, I am not the point he is. And so we, by nature, are selfish. Would you agree with that statement? Any of you agree that you're selfish? Let me see your hands. If you didn't raise your hand, come talk to me after the service. (laughs) I want to meet you. We live selfish lives in Christ. We're redeemed seeking to live selfless lives, but it's an eternal battle. It's not eternal, but a battle we face here on this planet. We desire to be selfless because we want to be like our Savior, but the struggle is we are wired to be selfish. That's why I think Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, fix our eyes upon ourselves. Who knows what Hebrews 12 says? Fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. We have to fix our eyes up on ourselves. That comes quite naturally. And so what we see in Genesis 1, in the beginning, Elohim. That is, 35 times in Genesis 1, we read about Elohim. He is the point we are not. Now, one of the things I, you have to note when you look at Genesis 1-1 is it does not begin with a theological treatise of the existence of God. There's no theological treatise on existence. There's no systematic theology on who God is or his existence in Genesis 1-1. Rather, his existence and his eternality eternality are presented as facts. Presented as facts. Now, we know there are many, and perhaps here today you're a skeptic and you've joined us this morning, and you're here today and say, I'm not even sure if God exists. You are an atheist. Ah, the word not, theist, God, you don't believe there is a God. There are many in our culture, many in our society that don't believe God exists. Atheist, ah, not, theist, God. We don't believe in the existence of God. 
Yeah, there are numerous arguments for the existence of God, but Genesis 1 doesn't give you that. Genesis 1 assumes that we understand the reality of the eternal God. Now, there are different arguments. One of the arguments I read this week is called the argument of the watchmaker. In 1807, a guy named Paley advanced an argument, or 1803, in, one of his, in a doctoral dissertation, and he talked about the watchmaker. He was writing about the existence of God to the skeptics. And he had a watch, and he said, uh, my watch proves that there is a designer. My, this watch did not come into being by itself. And so Paley wrote about the existence of a watchmaker. If we had a piece of art and we look at that, we assume someone created that piece of art. If we had a sculpture up here, we would assume there's a sculptor. We look at a PowerPoint before us, we assume somebody put that slide together. It didn't come together on its own and just magically appear on the screen. We assume that there is a watchmaker. Now, there's a guy named Richard Dawkins. Many of you have heard of Dawkins. He is a uh, professed atheist. He's written much. He's a, he's a philosopher, a scientist, and, and he, he wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker. His argument is a watch is an, an, an animate object, so it cannot reproduce. It cannot biologically change. Our bodies are not inanimate. Our bodies can reproduce. They are biological entities, and therefore he wrote the book A Blind Watchmaker to counter the argument of the watchmaker, saying because this is an inanimate object, it, it can, it's not a good analogy to what we have in a body, and he goes on to basically espouse a theory that uh, man basically came into his own millions and millions of years ago, et cetera, et cetera. I would submit to you that the existence of this watch certainly does prove that there's a watchmaker. If I stood before you today and said, you know what, I was walking the streets the other day, uh, this thing just popped out of nowhere, and uh, I, I don't know, it's mine now, it's a, it's a fossil watch, that means it's really old, Right? I mean, it's a fossil. Can you believe that? I own a fossil, a real fossil. You can get it for 75 bucks at Dillard, by the way. And, and if I told you this came into being by itself, you would say that's absurd. That's absurd. You, you tell me all the mechanisms inside of this and then the hands that appear on here. And then it's got three little things. I need somebody to tell me what all those numbers are for and the little hands that go around. I've never figured that one out because it's a fairly new watch. If I told you it came existence by itself, you'd think that's impossible. If I told you, you see this micro, you see, you see the sound system here? It's an, amazing, it's an amazing invention. But we've got guys in the sound booth, dear guys in the sound booth, the guys back there, good to see you, thank you, appreciate you here week after week serving us, thank you. We've got speakers up here, I've got this thing on my, my pocket right here that uh, is here, and then I've got this thing wrapped around my head and this wire that goes there, and all this, you're not going to believe this. You know, nobody made this. It came into existence on its own. You would say, Gary, we need to take you down to STC-1. <laughs> There's no way. But then we look at this. This is a bad example of this, by the way, but it's the only one I've got. It's a lot lighter than it was last year. That's the good news. But, but if we look at this, and I were to tell you, you know, it's here. It just kind of came together. And so you say, well, looking at you, I believe that. But it just kind of came together. There was no master designer. There was no creator. Over time, it just kind of came together. We would think it's absurd to think there's a watch that could come together on its own. Now, I'm, very, I'm simplifying, and I realize that. I've read Dawkins. I've read The Blind Watchmaker. I've read multiple creation accounts and stories and scientists. All I'm saying is, 
what we recognize when the scriptures start in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created. It's called ex nihilo, out of nothing. Out of nothing. Man can reproduce. Man can build. Man can make. But man cannot create out of nothing. It doesn't happen. Patrick O'Boyle was a uh, philosopher who lived in uh, London back in the 1940s, and there was something called uh, Hyde, uh, Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. And so Speaker's Corner was literally, we talk about soapboxes. They, they, they started with a soapbox, and they put a platform out there, and it, it would be a place for the give and take of dialogue. And so Patrick O'Sheen, this philosopher, theologian, would often go out there, scientists would often go out there, and he would debate skeptics. And so one day he's talking about the master designer. He's talking about intelligent design, basically, and saying because of the, intelli- because of the things that exist, there must be an intelligent design. We would say some somebody with intelligent design speaker systems, somebody designed to watch, and he's arguing because of the design around us, someone, some person created what we see, the world. So he's speaking, and there's a heckler in the crowd, and he keeps going back and forth with them. Finally, the heckler cried out, I could make a better universe than the God you're talking about. You know, she looked at him and said, uh, I'm not going to ask you to make a universe, but just to establish my confidence, could you create a rabbit? Think about that for a second. I'm not asking you to create a universe. I want you to create a body. Just create a simple little animal. And the heckler shuffled off with not another word. Only God can create from nothing. Back in 1989, when the wall fell, I read a story about a guy who immigrated from Russia to America. He said he thought uh, America was a wonderful country. And he said, I realized the first time I went in the grocery store, I went down one aisle, it said powdered milk, you add water and voila, you've got milk. He'd never seen that before. I went down another aisle, it said powdered OJ, orange juice, you add water, voila, you got orange juice. said, then I went down another aisle, it said powdered eggs, add water and voila, you've got eggs. I went down another aisle and I said, what a great country this is. It said baby powder. In the beginning, God created. He's the creator. He created the heavens and earth. Those are polar extremes. We call that in English, the English language, grandma, amerism, means opposite ends. And what he's saying is God created not just the heavens and earth, but everything in between. God has created it all. In the beginning, when time began, God, Elohim, created, that is, out of nothing, the heavens and the earth. What should that do to us? Well, we should bow down and praise and honor and glorify and worship as we have in song this morning, the one who is the creator. Amen? I mean, he is the creator. He is the one who Genesis 1-1 teaches us of the power of God, the might of God, the eternality of God, the transcendence of God, the wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God, who demands our total worship and submission because of who he is. But one author puts it this way. He says, there are many ways to worship God, but only one God to worship. We are called to an everlasting preoccupation with God. God is the point we are not. So the creator creates. That's what Genesis 1 is about. The creator, it's about him. And then he creates. And the crowning jewel of that creation is the Imago Dei, that is the image of God in man. So jump down to verse 26 with me. 
In Genesis 1.26, look in your Bibles, your apps, God said, let us. Up until now, it has been third person plural. Then God said, then God said, then God said, and now he says, let us. And so whatever God's going to talk about on this final day of creation is unique among all of his creation. Let us, plural, by the way, once again, I think a reference to the Trinity. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. So basically what we see here is a reference to the created. The Imago Dei describes our resemblance to God and our representation of God. It it, it refers to our resemblance to God. We resemble God. We resemble God. And you say, how do we resemble God? Well, we resemble God, that being made in the likeness of God, the image of God. By the way, those two words are very similar in meaning. They're put together to form intensity. They're intensifiers. When you put two words that are very similar in meaning together, they intensify things. For instance, if I told you uh, uh, Dak Prescott and uh, Ezekiel Elliott have had exceptional, sensational seasons, some of you would say, glory, hallelujah, amen, finally. But when I put those words exceptional and spectacular together, I'm intensifying the achievements of those men, right? And I hope they keep achieving all the way to a Super Bowl victory. Amen? And if you're not a Cowboys fan, throw something at me. (laughs) But here's the reality. When you put two words that are similar in meaning together, it's to intensify whatever the object is that it's referring to. And he says, in the image of God, the likeness, he he has made man in his image according to his likeness. And so what we see is an intensification of the uniqueness of mankind. All other things were created according to their kind, but man and his offspring are created in the image of God. Uh, Wayne Grudem, a theologian, puts it this way. If you look at the screen, the fact that man is in the image of God means man is like God and represents God. When God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the meaning is that God plans to, to, to make, uh, God plans, I lost my place up there, plans to make a creature similar to himself. Both the Hebrew word for image and the word for likeness refer to something that is similar, but not identical to the thing it represents or is an image of. We are like God, but we are not God's. You may think you're a God, you're not. We represent God. We are images of God, but we are not God's. So, Pastor Gary, what does this mean? What does it mean that we resemble God? Well, first of all, it, it's not physically. God is a spirit. It doesn't mean God has a head, God has shoulders, God has arms, God has legs. We're not talking about physical representation. We're, we're talking about resembling God in other ways. Let me give you some ways that we see that so that we can define what the image of God is. We resemble God in the fact that we have the capacity to make moral choices. Moral choices. For instance, we can feel things like shame and guilt and faith. we can be faithful. Uh, we, have, we make moral choices. We, we, we don't kill. We make moral choices. I was watching National Geographic the other night. It's about big cats. It was about lions at night. And every morning a lion wakes up trying to find a gazelle. And this particular National Geographic episode had showed lions stalking and then attacking a gazelle, devouring that gazelle. That lion did not feel badly one bit about what it did. And you know what that lion did? Got up the next day, and guess what it did? Found another gazelle to eat. No shame, no guilt, no remorse, devouring, tearing it up. I wasn't going to pop it up here, but it'd be too brutal for you to see. <coughs> we, we have an ability to make moral decisions. Not only that, but we have the ability to reason. Now, some of us reason better than others. Hopefully, a 35-year-old reasons better than a 13-year-old, but that's not always the case. 
but we have the ability to reason. We possess a soul. So Gary, how do you know that? Well, jot down in your notes or on your phone, whatever you're taking notes on. First Thessalonians 5.23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved completely. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, a very familiar verse, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. We are unique among all of God's creation by the fact that we possess a soul. Not only that, but we worship. We worship. How many of you have pets? You've got a cat, a dog, a horse, a goldfish, a hamster. Why? I don't know. But how many of you have one of those things? Let me see your hands. There you go. So you've got those. Your dog did not wake up this morning thinking it's going to worship. Didn't happen. Your, Your dog didn't say his prayers last night. Your goldfish could care less about the existence of God. Your cat will never read Genesis 1-1. Your cat thinks it's a God, but it's not. (laughs) I mean, we are unique among all of God's creation. That's one of the ways. We worship. We worship. That, that, That gorilla, that chimpanzee, that elephant, that giraffe, you pick it out, whatever it is, does not worship. The sun does not worship. The stars do not worship. The moon does not worship. The water does not worship. The fish don't worship. We alone worship God because we have a soul. We can make moral decisions. We can reason. And finally, he gives us a responsibility to rule over all of his creation. Genesis 128, it says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion over it. Subdue it. For 14 years, we had a wonderful dog in our house, Cuddles. Cuddles was the brightest dog that ever walked on the planet. She was great. Maybe not, but she was still great. Cuddles was a miniature schnauzer. You know what a miniature schnauzer? I was always the big guy walking around with a little dog on a leash. I'd get these funny little text message emails, big guy, little dog. <laughs> and uh, we'd walk, I'd walk for exercise. Cuddles would walk to chase cats. Even though she was on a leash, she thought she was a terror, even though she was smaller than most cats. And we love Cuddles. Cuddles is a great dog. Our kids grew up with her. We grew up with her. She slept on the foot of our bed. I never dreamed of a dog in my bed, but, you know, Cuddles on the foot of our bed, sleeping. When Cuddles died a number of years ago, she was gone. I like to say, doggone. <laughs> I loved her. Great dog. Don't get me wrong. But the reality of it is when Cuddles was gone, she was gone. I don't expect to get to heaven, look at Jesus face to face, and see cuddles down at the bottom. And some of you say, you, you want to send me emails and say, well, you mean my pet's not gone to heaven? I thought there was a movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Surely that theology's right, isn't it? And I don't know, you, anyway. Hey, your dog does not have a nephesh, that's the Hebrew word for soul. We are unique among God's creation. Now, let me add to that, by the way. I love animals. It doesn't give you the right to be abusive, not caring not loving and not kind to animals. If you can't do that, get rid of it and give somebody dust. Okay? We're blessed to have those things, those creatures that God's given us. But here's the reality, the tragic reality. If you've got kids in here, I apologize. You have to explain what Pastor Gary said. Those dogs, cats, goldfish, hamsters, geese, mice, ducks, whatever you got, they're not going to be with you. i got a feeling Jesus is enough, though. Okay? And so when we look at this, we recognize that we are unique among all of God's creation. 
Only man, not Lassie, Kung Fu Panda, Snoopy, Babe the Pig, Simba, and certainly not Garfunkel the Cat, Bevo, Reveille, Mike the Tiger, none of them are going to be in heaven with us. We, among all of God's creations, are to resemble him, and we are to represent him. We are to represent him. If an emperor, when an emperor came to power in the ancient world, this is Julius Caesar. So when Julius Caesar ruled Rome, you could find statues of Julius Caesar throughout the Roman Empire. It was a reminder to all of the people who were conquered by the Romans that they had a ruler. And we are made in the image of God. One of the implications of that is that we are to rule. It's subdue the earth and have dominion over it. We are rulers of God. Now here's the great news. These emperors would either place their statues in places or they would put governors or leaders of the nation in places that they had conquered throughout their empires as their representatives. So when you saw the statue of Caesar, you knew that you represent, they they represented the one who was a ruler. When you saw the governor, he represented Caesar and all the power of Rome. You, You know what God has done? God has put his spirit in us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit and we are those who are his images throughout his kingdom. And so the high, great privilege we have is we are made in the image of God to represent him in every place in the entire world that we go. And we should say, glory, hallelujah. We are his ambassadors, created in his image to rule. And so the reality of it is when when people go through the Roman Empire, they'd be reminded of Caesar. When we walk through the earth that we're on, that should be a reminder that there is a God that we represent. When they see us, they see our father. When they see us, they remember us. And so we have to ask the question, how are we doing representing and how are we doing resembling our Father? Back in the summertime, we did a series called Jesus Is. And on Father's Day, we talked about Jesus is the ultimate doppelganger. Do you remember that sermon if you were here? Jesus is the ultimate doppelganger. I didn't know what that word meant. I, that, that day, Father's Day last summer, I told you I'd never heard that word before. We were on vacation in Grand Canyon. I saw a guy standing there. He looked just like one of my best friends from Dallas Seminary days. I walked up to him, tapped him on the shoulder, thought it was Dan. When I got from here to there to him, I realized it wasn't Dan. And so I told the guy, hey, you mind if I take your picture? Send it to my friend who looks just like you. So I sent a picture of that guy to my friend Dan back in Tyler. And Dan texted me back. He said, I always wonder if I had a doppelganger. And I said, a who, a what, what in the heck is that? A doppelganger is a person that looks like another person. Do you remember all that? And so I popped some pictures up for you to show you what doppelgangers look like. This is a doppelganger, okay? (laughs) These are what doppelgangers look like. I popped these up just a few (laughs) on Father's Day of that year. And these are doppelgangers, okay? That's something that resembles someone else. So I said, uh, I better get away from there. You're not going to concentrate on a word I say, okay? He became what we are that he might make us what he is. That's what we're talking about. And so the question is, do you resemble the father? When people look like you, are you a doppelganger of the father? Do you look like him? Do you? There's a great old hymn of the faith. Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee. The middle verse goes this way. Oh, to be like thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving, tender, and kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinner to find. If you're a doppelganger, this is what you look like. You're full of compassion. You're loving. You're forgiving. You're tender. You're kind. You help the helpless. You cheer the fainting. You seek the wanderer. If your life is filled with fear and anger and bitterness and worry and unforgiveness, you're not a doppelganger of the Father. If your life is full of compassion, loving, forgiveness, tenderness, kindness, 
If you're helping others instead of being selfish, being selfless, you see somebody struggling, you come along and cheer them along the way. You look for those who you know are wandering from Christ and you seek to draw them back in or you, you befriend lost folks, ultimately, hopefully, to point them to Jesus. Then you're a doppelganger of the Father. The Imago Dei describes our origin. We are created. The Imago Dei describes our purpose to rule and have dominion over. The Imago Dei describes our design, our origin, our purpose, our design. Our design, he spells out for us in Genesis 1.27, and that's what we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about. He created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. What's it mean to be a man that was destroyed? How do we redeem it? What's it mean to be a woman that was destroyed? How do we redeem it? That's the next four weeks. So what are the implications of the Imago Dei? What are the implications of the Imago Dei? The fact that we are made in the image of God. Let me give you three things. These are not, it's not in the outline that you have in your hand. These are things that I came up with after that I felt like I needed to talk about, and then we'll stop. Implications of the Imago Dei. Implication number one, because every person is made in the image of God, because with the Imago Dei, all life has to be valued. Because we are made in the image of God, because of the Imago Dei, all life has to be valued. The reason we are pro-life is because all life has to be valued, including life in the womb. That's life. In Psalm 139, David is speaking. He says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are knit together in our mother's womb. Many of you folks are scientists. Many of you are medical. You understand conception. You understand life. I, I'm not going to expound on that, but I will tell you because that is a life. That's why we are pro-life because that life is made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And if you're a lady who's undergone an abortion, we've got some great help for you. If you're a lady who's pregnant and you're debating what to do about that, we have folks in this body who will willingly take your baby. Willingly take them. And anything can be forgiven, including an abortion. The Imago Dei. Because every person is made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, all life is valued. The unborn is to be valued. The dying is to be valued. That's why we do not believe in euthanasia. Because we believe God will work out his purposes in the life of a man or woman, even through death. It means the mentally impaired, the, the physically handicapped, the emotionally crippled are all made in the image of God, and we value them. If you were to walk with me down the hallway right now, we have a ministry called His Kids. When we remodel that existing building, we have a suite of rooms just for that expanding ministry. And there are some of our kids in there who will never speak a word, never utter a word, never walk a single step in their life, but they are highly valued because they are the Imago Dei. They are made in the image of God. The reason, the reason why we don't take those kids who will never walk, never talk, never be able to feed themselves, and we don't, we don't euthanize them because they're the Imago Dei. They are made in the image of God. So the first implication is because man is made in the image of God, we're to be valued. Secondly, because man is made in the image of God, men and women made in the image of God, they're to be dignified. They're to be dignified. Pornography is an Imago Dei issue. If you're a man or woman who looks at pornography, you are violating the image of God and that man or woman you're looking at on that computer screen and that magazine or whatever you're doing, it's an Imago Dei image. There's no reason a godly man or woman should ever look at pornography, period. And don't tell me it's going to help your marriage. If you're a man and tell me pornography helps your marriage, you come to my office, let's talk to you and your wife, and she will tell you it defames her, period. And if you think I'm passionate about that, I am, because I deal with wrecked marriages all the time. I'm on the verge of tears thinking about it. And you violate the Imago Dei 
of a woman, if you go to a strip club, you violate the imago day of a man if you read trashy novels. Why would you rent 50 shades of gray about a male stripper? You violate the imago day. And, and guys, I'm passionate because, I, I mean, if you, and, and you guys wrestle with this, we violate the imago day when we get involved in things like sex slavery. We get involved in things like prostitution. When you slander and gossip and spread innuendo about other people, you violate the imago day in that person, period. So it has to do with the value of man. It has to do with the dignity of a man or woman. And the third thing, this is about equality. The reason we are equal is because of the imago day. Doesn't matter what your race is, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, it doesn't matter what your gender is, it doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on. Slavery is a violation of the Imago Day, racism is a violation of the Imago Day, being prejudiced is a violation of the Imago Day. We've got a problem though. The Imago Day was shattered at the fall. When Adam and Eve fell, the Imago Day was shattered, but it wasn't destroyed. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, James chapter uh, 3, verse 9 talk about the image of God and man. Many of you have wondered, what are these things up here? I mean, what is this? It's actually a, a broken pot. It, it's a pot that's been shattered and put back together. These are going to be up here for 10 weeks. You know why? This is Gary DeSalvo right here. This is me. And this is you. You see, at the fall, we were all shattered. Now, the Imago Day was not destroyed. The image of God was not destroyed in man. We still have the image of God. That's what James says. That's what uh, Genesis 9 says. We still have the image of God, but, but because of the fall, it's been shattered. That's why we struggle with manhood and womanhood and, and, and proper view of marriage and proper view of family because the Imago Day has been shattered. But by God's grace and by God's grace alone, it's not been destroyed. Amen? And we are still created in the image of God. And because of that, we live lives and we value life and we dignify life and we see one another as equal because the Imago Day, even though it has been shattered, it has not been destroyed. And so I remind you 35 times in Genesis chapter 1, the word Elohim takes place. The Imago Day actually is all about him, not us. And so we're going to walk out of this auditorium in a minute. And you're going to face a world. And you have to make some decisions. The people you meet this week, in your office, on the streets, in the restaurants, the gal that waits on you, the one that checks you out, the guy on the corner holding a sign, friends, family, people you can't stand, they're all created, the Imago Day. We violate the Imago Day. We violate our Father. Father, help us. Help us to value the things that you value. Thank you for being a God of creation, a God who has created, a God who brought into existence all we see around us. Thank you for the Imago Day, for making us in your image, making us unique among your creation. And for that, we give you praise and we give you honor. We give you glory. In the beginning, God created. All we can do is bow down. 
Or as we sing earlier, I'll stand with arms high and hearts surrendered to the one who gave me life. I'm going to ask you to take a moment right where you are and just be quiet. Just be quiet, be still. We don't do that much at TBC, just quiet. And if you know Jesus as Savior and you realize the Imago Day, would you just give God praise where you sit right now in your own heart? If you're here today and you're a skeptic, I invite you to think through the simple illustration of the watchmaker to know there is a God, that God sent his son Jesus, who lived an innocent, perfect life, died on a cross so you might have forgiveness. Would you consider that today? So let's be quiet for a moment. And you offer praise to God from your own heart for being the creator of us. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. Bless you.